Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host and we are back again for another exciting week of Georgia politics. I am joined as always by my good friend Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? I am doing great, being an ignorant bliss of the fact that I'm about to be back in school. And then we are also joined by friend of the pod, Austin Wagner. Austin, thanks for coming back on. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so Austin, you are working with Minority Leader Bob Trammell on the state house races, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so we are we are very glad to have you here today then uh, for your insights because we are going to take a look at state house races coming up in the fall and uh, discuss whether or not the Democrats can make some gains. Uh, this is a chamber that they have not held a majority in in quite some time um, and they're sort of just barely been above the super minority threshold in recent years. But uh, given that it looks to be a good year for Democrats, at least based on early signs, there's a chance that Democrats can make some good gains in the state house. Um, so we'll talk about those chances for the party. Uh, for our second topic, we're going to share a couple of interviews that I did uh, with y'all over the last week. I talked to both candidates that were endorsed by President Obama. Uh, on last week's show, we discussed how President Obama endorsed both Stacey Abrams and Sarah Riggs Amico and two statewide candidates. He also endorsed two state House candidates, Matthew Wilson and Shelley Hutchinson. Um, so we talked to both of them about their reactions to that endorsement and why they jumped into these state House races. They may be two new faces that you get to see at the Gold Dome next year. And then for our third topic, we're going to come back to the topic of trade. This is a topic that I talked to Jessica Salaji about a few weeks ago on the show. Um, but this one has kind of reemerged uh, as a topic that might have electoral implications in Georgia in the fall, uh, because the president has continued to escalate his tariff spat with China. And uh, increasingly, products that are made in Georgia and uh, products that are important to Georgia are getting drawn into this. So we're going to talk about the impact of those tariffs and, and what the political consequences may be for Republicans in the fall as it relates to the president's trade war. Um, but let's start with our first topic and the chances that Democrats can make some gains in the state house. Let's start with you, Austin, and just can you just kind of give a lay of the land for us about, you know, what the chances are that Democrats can make some gains and what um, some of the numbers are in this? Yeah, I think the the first part of that is that I don't think it's a question of if we're going to make some gains, just just how big. Um, I think people on both sides of the aisle would agree at this point that it's almost a given that we're going to pick up some seats. Like I said, the question is just how many um, the big thing is that Democrats are challenging more seats than they've challenged in a really long time. We're challenging 56 Republican-held seats this time around. Uh, only 21 were challenged in 2016. So just by simple math and probability, um, we're challenging more than double. So um, we're definitely going to be picking up picking up seats. You know, just depends on how many. Luke, what's what's your view of this? Sort of having a, a statewide view. Of, of Democrats and their chances. Do you feel good about uh, the state house uh, getting moderately more democratic in the next legislative session? Yeah, I have to agree with Austin. I mean, it, it's pretty much inevitable if we you know do our job and uh, continue to work as hard as we've been working that we're going to pick up some seats in the state house. It's just the uh, the question is how many of them 
uh, will we get? And at, the, at this point, that's really determined on what we see from the campaigns for the rest of the cycle. So what's going to drive some of this? Are there, you know, specific standout candidates that that you think can flip these seats? Or, or is this kind of a product of the sort of democratic wave year that we're expecting, giving, given all the, the chaos in Washington and a, a relatively unpopular president? How do you guys sort of break down who is going to actually drive these gains for the Democrats? I mean, I think the first thing is that combination of all of those. We saw a really high uptick in the number of, of candidates coming out and and not just in the number, but in the in the quality of the candidates as well. People coming from, you know, all walks of life, you know, all areas of the state, politically involved, not politically involved, you know, everyone just kind of coming out after the 2016 election and deciding this is their time to really get involved and really do something. So we have that quality there as well as the quantity. So that's part of it as well. So I think that's going to drive some of the gains as well as just the the blue wave, so to speak, and the Trump effect on all of this. The other thing, too, that I've just always been amazed about is the fact of so many of these seats have been uncontested that were like pretty clearly Democratic seats. I mean, even President Obama won some of these seats both times, and we could not recruit a Democrat to run. So I, I it's a sign of the energy of this cycle and how much, I guess, people are frustrated with Trump and wanting to see change that we're actually able to get Democrats in those seats. How much of this, you know, the thing that stands out to me where Stacey Abrams could have some down ballot impact is her strategy is really structured around bringing new voters to the polls and giving people who have not been connected to the political process more reasons to vote. And you could, I think, safely assume that if these people are new to the process, but they're excited about Stacey Abrams, they may at least take a look at who their state house candidate is. And, you know, so so Democrats that may have in the past struggled to bring new voters to the polls in state house districts may have some um, sort of down ballot benefit by Abrams taking this strategy. Is that what do you what do y'all think of that as sort of inability to affect how these races might shake out? It, it goes both ways a little bit. You've got um, excitement at the top of the ballot. We've got national attention, national groups coming in and helping knock on doors. But then just from the number of people we have running in these places, they're going to be knocking on more doors than the statewides could possibly do as well. So hopefully it should work both ways and we're going to supplement each other and just get more people out to vote than we have in previous years because there's you know, more Democrats down ballot. There's excitement all over. So, you know, I think it drives it both ways. Yeah, I think I've mentioned this before. It's just, you know, like the math that, uh, you know, my, my home district of 119, you know, Jonathan Wallace, the math that he needs to win is different than the math that um, Abrams needs to win or any other statewide candidate, you know, the type of, you know, there's some voters that uh, Abrams doesn't necessarily need to target in a county county to win, whereas Jonathan does. And so if he's able to pull some Democrats out of the woodwork out of the county and get them to show up and vote for him, they're probably going to vote for Abrams, too. So hopefully, uh, you know, the there, there'll be some uh, synergy, uh, you know, that fun overused buzzword of uh, campaign activity. Yeah, you know, I, I think the other thing that's interesting about Democrats having a chance to to make some gains is you may sort of have a party that kind of has more expansive representation in this, you know, potentially growing Democratic caucus 
over half of the uh, contested Republican seats this cycle have women candidates, candidates of color are stepping up to run. And there is this big movement in Democratic politics right now to to have, you know, have politicians that are more representative of the actual Democratic voters and and some of these new voters that might get brought in. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I think could be interesting if you have big Democratic gains in this cycle is you're, you're getting away from sort of the bare minimum size of the caucus, which is somewhere around the uh, super minority line, which is important when it comes to constitutional amendments that if, if the Democrats have under a third in the state house, then Republicans can pass constitutional amendments on party line votes and having, you know, getting above that one third threshold and getting closer to parity with the Republicans means you're not in constitutional amendment territory and Democrats have more leverage when they withhold their votes. And so, you know, it, it could be interesting as this moves forward to see if a bigger Democratic caucus would be more confrontational with Republican leadership um, and how that might change the relationship between the two parties, but how it might change the policy that that comes out of those negotiations. Yeah, I mean, I think just just getting more seats in general always brings more leverage. You know, this is a this is a two cycle process for us. You know, what we're looking at is that by the time we get to 2020, we want to have control of the House. You know, so just getting any anywhere closer to that majority level is is huge for the Democrats in the chamber. Any any vote becomes um, interesting at that point. You know, just g- getting far enough away from the constitutional um, minority is is enough to make things interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing is too is for any major thing that happens in Georgia, despite us having control of neither chamber or the governorship, whenever the Republicans want to do something big, like on transportation or changing taxes or any of the school reforms that they've tried to push through, they've, they've pretty much needed Democratic buy-in. Like, it, you know, it, not if not only just votes, but also just us not going to the public and uh, going out against the uh, plan that they come up with. Because really the only major policy change in the state that I can remember that has failed flat on its face was OSD, which Democrats worked pretty hard to kill. So... You know, my in my opinion, it if we get more seats, it'll be an even bigger strength uh, of the party. In that we now we have like a near veto or at least influencer uh, on major policy decisions in the state, but we um, will definitely have uh, a much much stronger negotiating position if we can get more seats. And so you know, while we're not able to start a uh, stop a lot of the smaller changes that really affect people's lives, uh, but get less attention in the news, if we uh, if we have a bigger majority, uh, sorry, bigger minority, we definitely could uh, start to influence that. I think we we've kind of seen this happen in in another state. Virginia was a state that um, they have off year elections, and so they had their. Uh, some of their state legislative elections in 2017, and they had they had a democratic they've had a democratic governor for a little while now, but they had a legislature that was dominated by Republicans. Democrats made big gains. I think came within one seat of of taking the taking one of the chambers in Virginia, and came within I think just a few votes of actually taking that final seat. 
Um, that was a race that came down to a recount, but, but you saw a very different, uh, general assembly come back to, uh, Richmond and Virginia and govern a little bit differently. You saw the state finally accept the Medicaid expansion that was allowed under the affordable care act. And so I think that this sort of gives us a preview of what a bigger democratic caucus could accomplish, even if they do fall short of a majority, um, in the next legislative session, because, Medicaid expansion is an issue that has been on the table for a while. It's one Republicans have been really intransigent on. And it's not, you know, just a few people that are holding up these votes. It's it's a really broad spectrum of the Republican caucus that is opposed to this idea. But part of what you're seeing out of these uh, state House campaigns, and, and we'll see a little bit of this in our interviews with Matthew Wilson and Shelley Hutchinson, is that these candidates are running on issues. They're running on expanding Medicaid. They're running on expanding transit options in the Atlanta area. And if they win and you get more Democratic votes, those are going to be yes votes on those issues. And to the extent that Republicans are willing to somewhat accept some of these more moderate, more common sense ideas, um, but do it at the objection of their right flank, that is fewer Republican votes that have to be delivered to get these things through the process. And so, you know, part of our complaint on this show for quite a while has been that, you know, we're, we're kind of managing the state well, things are going pretty well, the economy is going fine, but we haven't really seen leadership at the legislative level to address some of the biggest challenges the state faces and having a legislature that looks different, having a legislature that has more democratic votes in it, I think increases the chances that we might finally uh, try to tackle some of these big problems we've been kicking down the road for decades. Right. Well, those are the, those are the stakes this year. You know, when we get to those, those higher numbers, things like, like you said, Medicaid expansion that comes into uh, a possibility, independent redistricting, all these things become possibilities when we add to the Democratic numbers. Um, just one, because we'll have more votes on that side, but also because other people are going to start to see the writing on the wall that this is this is what's coming and we want to try to make sure these things are done. Um, and yeah, I mean, all these candidates are, are running on these types of things. You know, they know these issues, they know what's important and what's affecting their communities in the metro area, outside the metro area. And you know, they know that these things are going to help the the real people out there. You know, we just saw studies come out about how, you know, we may be the number one state in which to do business. Um, but as far as happiness, quality of life, things like that, we're down in, you know, the low 40s of, of state rankings. And, and that's an issue. It's, it shows that the, the real people out there are hurting. And these state house candidates have the best opportunity to get in there and truly represent the people in the state house. Our listeners may have noticed we are only talking about the state house, and it is not only because Austin Wagner is here. Why isn't Luke? Why isn't the state senate a part of this conversation? So, unfortunately, Georgia is one of the most gerrymandered states in the United States. This is you know something we've brought up before, and so the state senate is just significantly tougher. Where you know, depending on who you talk to, there's like 15 seats that Hillary. Uh, one that the GOP holds and, you know, there's significantly, you know, and one, there's significantly more seats in the, uh, the state house too. And so the the margins are a little bit closer on a, on a lot of the races. There's a lot of races that Trump still, uh, sorry, a lot of districts that Trump still won, but Democrats have a decent shot at winning. We have three seats right now that are Trump seats that are held by Democrats. And so there's just a lot of more marginal seats in the state 
state house and the state senate on the other hand i don't think there's any seats that hillary won that a republican holds there's only like one or two uh that are close that could be competitive and so on that front there's just not as big of a board to uh, go after and uh the chances of taking over that chamber pretty much nil uh and you know with, with that the energy uh, in my mind, when it comes to Democrats in Georgia, is really behind all of our statewide candidates. People are pretty excited about that, and I hear uh, people talking about all of them, and uh, with the uh, state state house as well. Um, because, with the exception of Georgia's sixth and seventh, that's really the the major places where we have a chance to to actually elect some Democrats. All right, so I, I do want to just just mention those those state senate races that are that are competitive. There are two Republican held seats. Um, the biggest ones are Zara Karen Shack and district 48 is, is running there. And then Sally Harrell in uh, Senate district 40. Um, and then of course there's Jen Jordan in Senate district six who won the special election there and is up for the reelection now. So Democrats out there go knock on doors for them and donate money and do everything to make sure we can, we can hold the sixth Senate district six and then um, the other two state Senate ones as well. So, Austin, you mentioned that you guys are looking at this as a two-cycle strategy and you're wanting to uh, have Democrats take over the uh, state house by 2020. What do you guys think you can learn that would help state house Democrat candidates uh, to win and to be more successful than we have been in the past and actually finally take the house back? Um, I think the the first thing we kind of mentioned at the beginning, which is just run in all these seats. Um, so many of these places haven't seen a Democrat. They haven't had the opportunity to vote for a Democrat in, in much too long. So I think that's just the, the first thing that we can repeat again in 2020, which is more people on the ballot. Um, we have 120 Democrats on the ballot. Should have been 121 with the, the district up in Hall County. Um, but unfortunately, that's going to go to appeal before we can get that taken care of. Um, but Anyways, just running in all these seats is, is really the most important thing. Um, but other things that we're seeing from candidates successfully this time is they're raising a lot more money. People are paying attention. That's obviously going to be a big thing. And then, you know, we'll see what strategies obviously work right now. I mean, we're, you know, until people always go knock on the doors. That's really the biggest thing. Go out there and talk to the voters and give them a voice, you know, show that they have the option to vote for a Democrat and that they can go out there and um, vote for a Democrat instead of only having the one option on the ballot. As a uh, closing thought, do you do y'all think that Republicans take this seriously? Do you think that they're worried about their control on the chamber, or is this, from their perspective, is this kind of a a storm to weather, and then they'll get back to solidly Republican control further down the line? From my Republican friends, I would say that they're not taking it seriously. It's it's sort of, you know, it, I think I think Georgia does have the problem that out of all 50 states i think there's two states that democrats cry wolf in uh too often which is unfortunately georgia and texas is that you know there's always going to be like this is the year that democrats win texas or georgia like that beto 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 (laughs) but still still so like that always happens and so i think because of that i think we've cried wolf so many times on that that a lot of the republicans don't take it seriously because like when whenever people ask me like is stacy abrams gonna win there's always like a chuckle like either before or after the question uh and so (laughs) i think because of that that's going to be 
if it's not this cycle, then like the cycle that we eventually win, it will be partially because they didn't take us seriously. Um, from what I witnessed and from all I've heard, uh, that's the re- that's one of the reasons that Deborah Gonzalez was able to beat Houston Gaines is that he he just didn't put the work in because they they really underestimate Democrats in this state and so I think we're we're gonna be in for an interesting interesting race and uh, I think Republicans would do themselves a favor by uh, taking us seriously but I, I hope they don't so that we uh, can uh, take the house from them and uh, take the governor's mansion and all the other statewide offices. And state senate, of course. <laughs> I was going to say, no, they'll keep the state senate till uh, we don't have a state senate anymore. Um, any other closing thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'll just kind of reiterate some of that um, as as closing here. You know, I don't know what the Republicans are thinking, what they're taking seriously, or what they're not taking seriously. You know, we're acting like in every race that we're down by 10, 15, 20 points. We're working like uh, we're coming from behind in all of these. Um, and not going to take anything for granted. Um, like I said, we feel great about the candidates that we have. Um, I know we have interviews with with two awesome candidates that um, did receive an endorsement from Obama. You know, but there's candidates all across the state and all different kinds of districts who really people should be paying attention to because there's a good chance we're going to see some of them in in the Gold Dome. You know, honestly, we feel we feel good about the number of races, and we think you know, that we can, we can pick up 10 seats. That's a number that we feel really, really good about. Um, and like we said, it's a, it's a two cycle, um, journey here. Um, yes, there's the theoretical possibility that we could win every single race that there's a Democrat on the ballot and we could all of a sudden have 120 Democrats, but of course that's, that's not going to happen. Um, and we feel really good about, we feel really good about 10 and the candidates that we have there and then feel really great about what that means for, for 2020 coming up. And just seeing more people come out and get involved, uh, voters, volunteers, campaign staffers, candidates, and not just in the state house, but um, what this could mean up and down the ballot in city council races, county commissioners, you know, just getting involved in all those places. Um, I know we're, we're focusing on, you know, one thing here, but people are getting involved everywhere and that's going to make a significant impact in 2018, but in 2020 as well. All right. Well, let's hear from two of those state house candidates. So now we're going to share with you my conversations with Matthew Wilson and Shelley Hutchinson. And then on the other side, we'll be back to talk about trade. All right. So we're now joined by Matthew Wilson. He's the Democratic nominee for state house in House District 80. Uh, Matthew, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Um, So your campaign made a little bit of news last week uh, when you uh, were among a group of Georgia politicians to receive the endorsement of former President Obama. Um, So can you just tell us a little bit about your reaction to that endorsement? Yeah, it um, it it was quite a pleasant surprise. Um, Very much an honor to have President Obama's uh, endorsement and to know that he believes in our campaign and he believes in, you know, our ability to uh, flip House District 80 back into the blue column. So let's talk a little bit about you and and why President Obama might have thrown his support behind you. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit about your background and what uh, motivated you to run for this office? Yeah, I'll give you um, I'll give you the highlights. I am a lawyer practicing in Brookhaven where I live. 
Um, but before law school, I taught middle school for a few years. I taught sixth grade math and science. And I can assure you, I learned way more teaching sixth graders than I did going to law school. <laughs> but, you know, like a lot of first time candidates running at the state level, I'm running because after, you know, the November 2016 election, I really just got jolted into action that I really feel that our state politics are going in the wrong direction and, and good people have to step up and do something. And for me, that meant running for this seat. And it's also uh, somewhat more personal for me as an openly gay man who has, you know, I've spent the last five, uh, five or six years lobbying against the so-called religious freedom, religious liberty effort um, under the Gold Dome and have been working alongside groups like the Human Rights Campaign and Georgia Equality. And I'm very proud of the progress that um, we were able uh, to achieve. And then, you know, last year, somehow that uh, fight got even nastier because then the conversation became uh, Republican lawmakers wanted to reform Georgia's adoption system to prevent LGBT parents from being able to adopt in Georgia. And, you know, here I am, I'm a 34-year-old gay man who would like to get married in the not-too-distant future and, you know, adopt to start a family. And if these people get their way, I will not be able to do that. And as a Georgia Georgia boy through and through, you know, grew up in Griffin, um, went to UGA for undergrad and law school uh, and have no plans to leave anytime soon. I know that those aren't the core values of me, my family, my friends um, and the state that I know um, and love uh, so dearly. So that's why I'm running. So you you mentioned the the push around the religious liberty, religious freedom issues, and the adoption issues in the state in the last few years. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about what the state could do and and should be doing in terms of standing by LGBT people, LGBT people, and and honoring their rights in our state? Well, first I will say this: I I firmly believe that representation matters, and so electing more LGBT people to our legislatures at all forms of our of our government help us as a state and as a community, first of all. Um, and second, you know, I think that what the state should be doing is, first of all, recognizing that LGBT Georgians are just as much Georgian as everyone else is. You know, we uh, live on the same streets, go to the same churches, go to the same schools as everyone else and uh, are are doing working very hard to you know, live the American dream um, in the state that we love so dearly, and so you know, for lawmakers to single out, you know, our community um, and and limit our rights as Georgia citizens, that that just boggles the mind. And and um, not only does it make not make sense, but it, it's it's incredibly uh, hurtful. Um, and and I think very harmful in the message that it sends to uh, to, to Georgia citizens and families, and then also other people outside the state who might want to come here, whether they be citizens, you know, or businesses. Another pressing issue in the state of Georgia is the issue of health care. Um, so could you just give us kind of your view of what the state should be doing as it relates to to our Medicaid program and to health care issues broadly in the state? We have to expand Medicaid. We have to. Um, there's no reason, uh, no good reason why we haven't done it yet. I mean, it's just purely partisan politics 
you know, I mean, this this isn't news to you or anyone who listens to this podcast, but our state lawmakers are rejecting our money that we sent to the federal government and the federal government is trying to send back to Georgia so that we can provide health care for our citizens. We're rejecting that money and having the federal government send it to, you know, our neighbors in Alabama or Tennessee when we have perfectly good use for it right here. We have um, hundreds of thousands of Georgians without health insurance that this could directly benefit. But instead, we're choosing to play politics in an election year. And I'm hopeful that after the November election, we'll, we'll be able to get uh, some traction here. You know, one thing, and again, this, this won't be news to you either, but since 2010, there have been six hospitals in Georgia that have, that have had to close because directly because of uh, our failure to expand Medicaid. Uh, this, this helps them as well and is a, a booster shot in the arm of rural hospitals across Georgia. Um, and that's where you've seen um, in the legislature, both in, that, in the House and in the Senate, rural legislators are working with Democrats to try to find some common ground here. And so I think I'm hopeful that when we get out of an election year, we can get a lot of progress done on this. Um, so another top issue uh, at the state's consideration is what to do about transportation and transit and alleviating congestion in the Atlanta area. Um, the state's made some progress uh, this year with the creation of the ATL, the new governing body for transit agencies. And it looks like Gwinnett County will, will have a vote about joining MARTA um, at some point, uh, maybe next spring. Um, what's your view of... Uh, the issue of transit in Georgia, and and do you think the state is doing enough or moving fast enough about addressing this issue? This is a, certainly a top priority for me, and no, I don't think we're doing enough, and no, I don't think we're moving fast enough. Um, I do think that the legislature should get credit for the bill that they passed um, creating this regional commission this past year. You know, that was a great bill. The problem is it should have been done two decades ago. <laughs> and uh, but I, but I'm glad that that we have that. That is obviously a first step of many that we need to take. And this is this is actually a key in my race. This is a key issue where um, my opponent and I differ. You know, she, she uh, she's been taking credit for that for for that transit bill passing through the House, but has has said here in the district that the best we're going to be able to do in North Atlanta to improve transit options is bringing in more buses, more MARTA buses. And I fundamentally reject that, that buses are the only way that we can improve transit opportunities in in North Atlanta. We have got to look at expanding rail. Um, And when you talk to the residents in House District 80, who, who I spend my time talking with, you know, they are very adamant that they want more rail in North Atlanta. And that's, you know, we're not gonna be able to pave our way out of this we're going to have to look at expanding both light rail and heavy rail in in throughout the throughout the region but certainly in North Atlanta where we're seeing a big uh, surge in population so this is one of this is another issue that i think you know i've been heartened to see republicans lead the effort in the last few years um, so i think that this is a perfect issue area where uh, we can get bipartisan support and actually get some great things done uh, for georgia 
Could you tell us a little bit about um, what's going on with the interaction between state and local government with DeKalb County? I know this is an issue in your race uh, because your opponent had a bill related to reforming DeKalb County government. And, and I think I don't think that that went anywhere last session, but there's a study committee going on with that. It's not something we've talked about here before on the show, but could you talk about like the importance of that issue in your district and kind of what's going on with that? Yeah. So, um, you know, she's uh, she's made a big to do about abolishing the CEO position in DeKalb County. And, um, you know, my position on this is uh, the same as um, the DeKalb County CEOs, uh, CEO Thurman and and uh, CEO May before his, you know, and, and the vast well, probably 90 percent of the, the DeKalb County uh, caucus. And that's that you know, we have to follow a democratic process here, especially if we're talking about removing an elected official, you know, from existing, not the, uh, removing an elected position from existing. We have to, this is going to affect 800,000 Georgians. Um, so there, there's a process to be followed. My opponent has tried to unilaterally abolish the position in the legislature this past year through her name change bill. You know, essentially it would just change the the CEO position from a CEO position to a county commission chair um, doesn't really change anything other than the name of the position. But what we really need is a comprehensive look at uh, what's working and what's not working with that position. And then, you know, issue, have an open, transparent study process, put that before the voters and allow them to vote on it. This is their government, you know, their county leader. They should have a say in whether they keep that position or not, and not one legislator at the Gold Dome. And are there any other issues that are that are key or important to you in this race that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, public education is is a big issue for me, being a former uh, public uh, school teacher and being a product of Georgia public schools, really all the way through law school. I went to UGA for uh, college and law school, um, so public schools all the way. And as I've been out talking to to voters in the district, that is an issue that keeps coming up. And in particular, this effort under the Gold Dome to allow people to essentially opt out of Georgia public education with their tax dollars. For example, if they're sending their kids to private school, allow them to divert their their property tax money uh, that normally would go to the state to spend on school, public schools, and allow them to divert that to their private school of their choice. And I just fundamentally disagree with allowing that to happen. We are a community in the broadest sense, um, this great state that we live in. Um, and we can't pick and choose the services that we offer to our neighbors. Having a robust and uh, a public education system benefits not just those of us that send our kids to public school, but it benefits the whole state because we are able to have an educated workforce that can continue to propel our economy forward. So this is not just the the morally right thing to do, but it's all it also makes sense uh, economically. Well, Matthew, if people would like to learn more about and support your campaign, how could they do that? We'd love to have them. Um, our my website is matthewforgeorgia.com. Everything spelled out. Matthew has two T's, F-O-R-G-E-O-R-G-I-A.com. Um, and uh, you can sign up for uh, updates. We need help with volunteers to help us knock on doors and uh, would love to uh, hear from anyone, particularly that lives in Brookhaven, Sandy Springs, or Shambly. 
All right. Well, great, Matthew. Um, Thank you so much for joining the show and best of luck in your race. Thank you. And now I will turn it over to my conversation with Shelley Hutchinson. She's a Democrat running in House District 107. This is just a segment of the conversation that we had. You can find our full conversation in the next episode in this feed. In that conversation, we talk about her views on transit and the Gwinnett County decision recently to hold a vote to join MARTA. We cover her background in child welfare policy, and we talk about a whole lot more. So I would encourage you guys to look at that next episode in the feed and check out this full interview. But here is a segment of our discussion. All right, so we're now joined by Shelly Hutchinson. She's the Democratic candidate for House District 107. Uh, Shelly, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Um, So your campaign made some news last week when you were a part of a small group of Georgia politicians who received the endorsement of former President Barack Obama. Um, So could you just give us your reaction to receiving the president's endorsement? Um, Shocking, first of all. Um, I was not expecting it. In fact, I was on vacation with my family. And when I woke up, my husband said, congratulations on your endorsement from the president. I was like, um what are you talking about? He said, well, you, you posted about it last night. I said, uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. And come to find out my um, campaign manager found out and posted it, but didn't tell me. <laughs> and um, my, so my husband was like, yeah, you just got endorsed by the president. I was like, well, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, I was not expecting it. I, um, I didn't apply for it. Um, lots of people have asked, you know, how did how did you do it? I want to do the same thing. I didn't do I didn't do anything actually. Um, I was involved in his um, administration, but I think the reason why I got the endorsement um, was he said that he's going to be involved in the uh, local house district races to try to reverse some of the gerrymandering. So he endorsed um, the top two most flippable districts in Georgia. So regardless of what I've done in the past um, in his campaign, I, I honestly think that's that's how that came about. So let's talk a little bit about why the president might have endorsed you. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your background, what what you were doing before you decided to run for office and, and what made you jump into this race? So I am a clinical social worker. Um, I've always been involved in the community. I've always been involved in politics, not uh, in local politics as much as I was in like the presidential campaigns which I still feel guilty about, but I would get, every time I would vote and see so many people running uncontested, um, I felt like I needed to do something. And every time that happened, I would write my name in. I refused to vote for someone who was not contested. So after the 2016 election, I was just as dumbfounded as everyone else and I started to think more about it and talk talk to people who I knew were in politics and could give me some direction and if they thought I would be a good candidate. And I sat on, a, I still sit on a board with um, State Representative Spencer Fry, and I asked him to meet with me and we sat down and we talked about it. He thought I'd make a good candidate. And he said, well, I'm going to go back and look and, at see, and see what the numbers look like in House District 107. And he called me that night. He said that House District 107 was 
one of the top most flippable districts in Georgia. And I believe it's the second most flippable district in Georgia. Hillary won our district by um, almost 12 points. And no one was stepping up. Um, so I talked to everyone. I knew I actually knew Stacey Abrams from meeting her at an event at UGA. And um, I met with her before she left um, the state house. And I talked to her about, you know, if she thought I'd make a good candidate. And she was kind of my last hurdle. If she gave me her blessings, I thought, you know, maybe I'd have a chance at this. And she did. And she um, put me in touch with people so that I can do training and and everything just kind of rolled off from there. Um, so on your website, you've uh, sort of organized your message around four pillars, investing, involving, informing, and including. Um, can you describe describe that message for us? Well, investing, um, there's a lot, lots of ways I think that we can invest in Georgia citizens. I think one of the biggest investments that I think we can make right now is expanding Medicaid. Um, I'm a clinical social worker. I own a outpatient mental health clinic. We serve um, um, roughly 11 counties. And I work with uh, the kids that we work with are not usually, you know, kids with minor chronic depression. We work with the kids who are the most worrisome children that we have in Georgia. Um, the ones who have been arrested before age 10. Those children are covered. We try to get them covered by Medicaid because Medicaid will cover the most treatment than any private insurance. Um, and we're talking about kids who have the potential to um, harm themselves or other people. So when those kids don't have Medicaid, we're talking about a safety issue for everyone. We're talking about, you know, you can be, this could be your neighbor's child. You'll never know. This is not necessarily a family who comes from a poor part of town or a, a rough neighborhood. This, this can be a child that is, is born with um, a chemical imbalance that creates the types of behaviors that brings us, brings them to our attention. And without Medicaid, we really can't treat those kids the way we need to. Even with the Medicaid that they have now, some of the most severely ill children don't get the, the, the help that they need, like the children who are setting fires and, and killing animals and have no empathy, which is sort of the triad for um, a predictor for more serious crimes as an adult. We... And uh, and this is statewide, not even necessarily Georgia. Um, this is country, this is around the country. There isn't a really good treatment that people can invest in. There is treatment, but it's very expensive. And the only way that anyone will be able to cover it is through Medicaid. And with a concerted effort with other states and other authorities, um, and it 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 really can only be done that way. And um, as a contrast. I had one child who was covered by Cigna, and she was a, she was very violent. This child was 16. She was um, close to six feet tall, about 280 pounds. She lived with her mother and grandmother, and she was just very violent to her grandmother and her mother. And she had been hospitalized five times in six months. But Cigna would not cover anything other than a three-day stay in a crisis stabilization unit. 
It wasn't until the sixth time that she was hospitalized and she punched her psychiatrist that Cigna uh, approved a seven-day stay versus a three-day stay. Now, if this if this was a child covered by Medicaid, a long-term stay in the hospital is, is determined 30 days at a time versus seven. And this is a child that would have needed, that needed way more than seven days in a hospital. Because at that age um, and with her history, there's going to be a very specific mix of medication that takes a long time to determine, um, not to mention family therapy and things of, those na- of that nature. But private insurance just does not cover it, um, and they're not going to cover it anytime soon. The other, another investment that we very clearly need to make is in our education system. My daughter just graduated from um, a public school in Gwinnett County, and I am going to take her to uh, move into her dorm in Scotland next month because they invest way more money overseas in their secondary education um, program system than we do. Their citizens, their children graduate from college without any debt. So the international rate to go overseas to college is much less than the in-state rate for public school, public universities in Georgia. Luckily, and some some countries are actually free for for U.S. citizens or any international student to go to college in their countries. If we made that type of investment in our kids, they don't have to worry about whether or not they're going to pay tuition or eat or pay tuition or pay rent at the same time and live in their cars, because that happens at UGA. Their programs to feed UGA students because they can't afford food. We have homeless UGA students, but we can go in, to other countries and go free. So that's another investment that we can make in, in Georgia. Um, early education, if we start our kids early, um, even earlier than pre-K, they'll come out um, in the long run, ahead of, well, much higher than we are now as far as rankings go for countries um, and where their students are graduating after college. So I think we have um, lots to invest with. Include is another one. I think that um, one of the bills that really bothered me last year was the attempt to ban uh, same-sex couples from adopting. I've worked with children who are in foster care and who have been adopted my entire career. And there is a website called My Turn Now, and anyone can Google My Turn Now. Um, It is a list of the kids who are available for adoption in Georgia, and it's set up almost identical to the animal control website that we go to if if we want to adopt a pet. There's the picture of the child, there's a description of the child, and we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of kids who need homes. And just if you take the same sex part out of it, the fact that anyone would exclude an entire group of people as a resource to these kids is just unconscionable. Not to mention the statistics for same-sex couples adopting the um, rel- the um, the statistics for confirmed child abuse in those homes are lower than almost any other population. So there's no reason other than spite, hate, or whatever you want to call it, um, to exclude that population from from adopting. 
immigration, um, the House bills that that uh, keep ICE in Georgia, that uh, we're spending so much money and so much effort for hateful, spiteful legislation that we can be putting to our energy towards things that will help and not separate families. Um, one of my staff was a dreamer. He was picked up by ICE and he was legal. He was in this country legally. He and his sister were detained for more than 30 days because of a mistake that ICE made. By the time they got out, she lost her scholarship. He lost his job. These are things we don't need in Georgia. This is we're bringing our country down. I mean, our, our, we're bringing our country down. We're bringing our state down. So we need to we need to be more inclusive and stop picking and choosing which culture, which race, which sexuality, gender, whatever, is most uh, desirable to us. Because you know, the bottom line is there's really hardly anyone other than American Indians that are not immigrants in this country. I was trying to think which pillar I ended on. Uh, I, I think to- you hit in, investing, including um, informing. It, we have to be more um, transparent and we have to um, educate families about what's available to them. Um, it's I, like I said, I work in the community. We do um, mental health. A lot of our services are done in the community. And a lot of times families just don't know uh, anything about um, the electorate. They don't know anything about how to vote. They don't know how to advocate for their kids. They don't know how to advocate for themselves. They don't know if they don't speak English that there's um, programs to learn how to speak English. And on the flip side, we, you know, we have our population of Spanish speaking people are growing immensely. I think that we should be educated on how to speak Spanish. I've been trying to speak Spanish for years now. I'm totally clueless and I am in awe of little kids who can who are bilingual at the age of six. Um, I think we can educate ourselves about each other. I have an African-American son. My my white friends don't didn't really understand the talk that I had to give my son who just turned 15 and got a driver's license the talk that I had to give him about when and if he's pulled over by a police officer and how he has to act and how it's different for him. But luckily I have a phenomenal group of friends who listen and understand and are open to hearing this and um, empathize with what my family experiences. So I think an open dialogue about um, just who we are, what we are, you know, any culture um, we have, you know, an Italian culture versus a, you know, Scottish culture. I, we have to be able to talk about these things without being offended and be able to listen and turn that into an educational moment for you and for your kids. Because the only way our kids will know to welcome people into their lives, into their state, into their hearts is if us, if we as parents model that. Involve is another one, um, it, and it's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, I am still amazed at people who don't feel it necessary to vote. I've always voted for everything, even if it's just, you know, splossed, uh, the, the penny tax on 
to you know make sidewalks. I vote for everything. So to meet a person who's never voted before, still it, it shocks me. To meet someone who's never voted before and they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s shocks me. And to educate those people about how their involvement um, is important, particularly in races that, um, political races that decide how we vote and for who and who is in power, um, like drawing district lines. And some of these races are decided by a handful of votes or the race that was decided by a coin cost, um, that your vote actually really does count and we really need to hear from you. Because if we don't hear from you, we don't know what you're, you know, I feel like I understand my community because I've done work in, in, in my community. I've lived in my community for more than 20 years. And my job brings me into people's homes. So I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of what my community needs or wants. I don't pretend to know everything because I don't. I'm always learning. I'm learning about the people who, the, the struggles that people have, not only the struggles, but the joy, um, the, the, the things that make people happy. Uh, you'd be surprised that I'm surprised. I'm constantly surprised by the things that make people happy. Just really small acts of kindness that make a big difference in people's lives. So to be involved with your community, to know your community that way, and to want to know the people in your community is important. And that's so those are kind of the things that that I am um, I'm running on the pillars that I'm running on. Well, Shelly, we really appreciate you coming on the show and, and, and sharing your insights. Um, if people would like to learn more about your campaign and, and support your campaign, how could they do that? They could. Uh, the best way is to email me, Shelly at Shelly for Georgia, F-O-R, Georgia, spelled out, dot com, or go to the website, www.Shelly, F-O-R, Georgia, spelled out, dot com, and um, I respond pretty quickly. All right. Well, thank you to Matthew Wilson and Shelley Hutchinson for taking some time out to talk to Peach Pod. Let's move on to our final topic of the week. We let Austin Wagner go, so you're you're stuck with just me and Luke for this final segment. Um, but we wanted to talk a little bit about the issue of trade and whether or not this is kind of a substantive issue that could shape these elections in the fall. Um, so currently, Trump is about to implement his second phase of tariffs with China. Uh, the president and China have been a, in a back and forth on trade sanctions against each other. And the president looks like he's ready to make good on his full uh, threat to the Chinese of putting tariffs on 50 billion goods, $50 billion of Chinese goods. The Chinese are responding with tariffs on about $60 billion in American goods. Um, and this is an issue that may resonate at home because the industries that are being targeted by the Chinese to sort of gain leverage over Trump and the Americans in these negotiations are industries that are important in counties that Trump won. Um, you know, particularly the ones that are related to here at home in Georgia are um, tariffs that could impact pecan farmers and tariffs that could impact the Kia plant in Southwest Georgia. So, Luke, you know, do you ever hear about trade from people? Is this something that you know is uh, is at the top of some people's minds, or is this something that might be able to sneak up on Republicans in the fall if if people really don't like where this goes? Well, in my circles, I feel like 
we're dealing with a lot of people who trade is not an issue that is at the forefront of their mind. Uh, whenever I hear trade come up uh, in this administration, it, it really is it's really something that's just like on the long list of stupid things that Trump has done without like thinking about the consequences and, you know, policies that we don't really understand what the goal is and why, why he's doing it. Um, and so, I mean, that, that's been a feeling of mine, uh, every time that trade comes up is that, you know, I don't really know what his goal is with it. And I don't think many other people do as well because, you know, he's obviously gone out and said the trade wars are easy to win and that, you know, like we're, it's, it's just going to be like simple to, to handle this trade war. But like, okay, so this is my problem with trade with them. So like when he says, I want to build a wall, like I know why he wants to build a wall. He wants to keep out Mexicans. Like that is the logic behind building the wall. I don't understand. And I don't really hear many other people understand like, what does winning a trade war look like for him? What are the metrics of success and all that kind of stuff? And so, really, I think for you know folks our age, like the trade issue is just another one of those Trump is being stupid type of things. But this is something I think, if continues, could be really dangerous for for them because uh, our you know there's a reason free trade popped up and and there's some advantages to it. Uh, it might not be the best system ever, but it is the system that we've been working with for quite some time in the United States, and it's uh, what people have come to expect. And if we keep escalating, uh, you know, the tariffs that we're putting on other people, you know, it's been it's been quite clear that other countries know how to uh, play the same game, and you know, we've seen some pretty targeted tariffs from our European allies uh, against us in response to the ones that we've put you know put on them and so and and since they are so purposely targeting trump's voters i think for people who aren't in our circles uh this might be a source of solid irritation and it's something that you know for a couple months that they could let slide by because they like the president and everything else that he does uh you know eventually if he keeps hurting their pocketbooks by and and doesn't have a clear reason of why he's doing it or a clear end goal i think it is something that um they would have to worry about well yeah this is part of what we've seen in the reporting the the macon telegraph talked to some pecan farmers in south georgia and they really were sort of willing to go along with Trump on um, the tariffs that he was putting on China and, and the potential economic stress that he would put on farmers back home. They were sort of resigned to the idea that if Trump thought this was the right thing to do, that they were going to deal with the consequences and they were going to stand by him. Um, it'll be interesting to see as that drags on, if that feeling changes, because you're actually right, Luke, in in terms of really nobody has a sense of what tra- what Trump would define as victory in this. And part of the issue is that some of the things that get talked about when this trade issue comes up is Chinese business practices around intellectual property from American companies and whether or not American companies that try to do business in China are unfairly targeted for their intellectual property and having to give up basically their their business knowledge to to participate in the country that is a problem wholly separate from 
the issues that farmers face or the issues that uh, foreign car manufacturers face. And so for Trump to win on the issue of intellectual property, he doesn't automatically then turn around and compensate the people in the United States that have lost because those are different industries. Those are different parts of the economy. They're different issues. Um, and so it is difficult to see what the end game is. One, you know, he hasn't really laid out one that's defined and how, you know, winning in at least a narrow sense is actually going to compensate the people who've been hurt by this trade war. It's produced an interesting split in Republican officials in Georgia. It, it, Democrats, I think, have pretty universally been critical of this, but it, it's fairly easy for a Democrat to be pr- critical of President Trump these days. But Senator Isaacson sponsored a bipartisan bill to prevent auto tariffs on foreign auto manufacturers. Uh, part of that, I think, was trying to defend the economic progress that's been made with the Kia plant in Georgia. Um, But he said, talking about this, he said that these tariffs hurt expansion, they hurt new investments, and they impact the business climate negatively for those things that have a lot of steel and aluminum components, which is most everything. Uh, But his stance was decidedly different from both uh, David Perdue's stance and Brian Kemp's stance. Um, Perdue, at an event, at a Budweiser plant in Georgia told employees of Budweiser in the room that he was opposed to metal and aluminum tariffs. Uh, But this was an event that was covered by the media and he came out afterwards and basically told the media that the, the Trump tariffs were working. And so he's kind of got split messaging on this and is seems to be very wary of criticizing a close ally in president Trump you know, in terms of an issue that could drive a wedge between different factions of the Republican Party, this one seems to be one that falls along the line of, will you follow Trump if he does anything at all? Or do you have limits to your support for the president? Yeah, I find it interesting uh, how Isaacson and, and Purdue have split on this. Uh, it, it, it seems pretty typical to me. This is sort of the tones that both of them uh, take up. Um It'll be really interesting to to see who comes after Isaacson because, you know, this is probably his last term. I'd be pretty surprised if he ran again. Uh, David Perdue has to run for re-election in two years. And I think uh, tying himself so close to uh, Trump's policies are, are a pretty big risk. I think it, I, I would be very surprised if David Perdue had a significant primary challenger, but he's going to have a real Democratic opponent when he runs for re-election. I think a lot of this uh, could really hurt him because in the long term, I don't see Trump's supporters uniformly standing behind him if he's significantly hurting their pocketbooks. And agriculture is an incredibly important industry in Georgia. Uh, A lot of the manufacturing in Georgia is being hurt by these tariffs. And so, uh, you know, it's 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 a risk that I I'm happy that David Perdue is taking because it will make uh, arguing against him a lot simpler. So I have a bone to pick with Casey Cagle. What? <laughs> so, Kyle, um, I know, I know. You big, never have any big surprise. Big surprise. You just a Casey. reminder. Just a reminder. Casey Cagle said that Donald Trump should have won a Nobel Peace Prize for his uh, work in North Korea. Um, setting in case that you aside, forgot. though, in case you forgot, I will always be there to remind you. Um, so, 
one of Casey Cagle's final arguments against Brian Kemp in the Republican primary was that Brian Kemp was going to be a lapdog for Washington, and Brian Kemp er, and Casey Cagle said that he would be a bulldog for Georgia, not a lapdog for Washington. And Cagle specifically pointed out the issue of trade because this was something that you know these these tariff threats and this pending sort of. Uh, simmering trade war have been an issue going back through the primary. Um, And Cagle specifically pointed at trade, specifically said that Brian Kemp, should he win the Republican primary and become Georgia's next governor, would owe his victory to Donald Trump and to Washington. And he would be, he would have no choice but to not oppose the president on this issue and not stand up for industries in Georgia because he was beholden to the president. Since then, Brian Kemp won the primary. Brian Kemp was asked by the AJC what his opinion was on this trade conflict, and he basically said that he supports whatever decision the president makes on delicate trade negotiations. Where is Casey Cagle, who, you know, he's the one who claimed he would be a bulldog for Georgia, but he endorsed Kemp, spoke at the unity rally where Republicans kind of circled the wagons and and got things together after the primary. And then as far as I can tell, has kind of largely disappeared on this issue. We said before the primary ended, that this is exactly what Casey Cagle would do. And to me, it was contributing, contributing to the idea that Casey Cagle would say whatever he felt he needed to say to try to win the election, regardless of whether or not he believed it. And I if think only there was a tape of, of him talking about that, that he would do something like that, that would have really been useful in our, you know, analysis. Well, there was, I mean, the interesting thing is he hasn't scrubbed the op-ed from his website yet where he made this final case to voters in the final days. And so, you know, I, I think that this could become a liability for Brian Kemp. I don't think it's something that individually loses the race for him. But I think it is a part of a broader Democratic message that Democrats can make against Republicans and the president that they really, despite the rhetoric, despite what they say, they really do not care about the interests of blue collar people. And they really can't back that up with doing good things for blue collar people. Kyle, did you just figure that out? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm new here. This is a revelation. Republicans don't care about blue-collar people? Well, no, I think... But that was something that Trump sort of basically was able to uh, deflect in his election in a way that people believed. They thought Trump was going to go to Washington and be a different kind of Republican. The Republicans have been doing this since Reagan, man. This is nothing nothing new. But this this is how it kind of can can cost them is this combined with messaging around the tax cuts and the attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act all contribute to this underlying idea. And it's a place that I think Stacey Abrams and other Democrats are can argue from pretty safely because it reflects their views and it reflects their focus on uh, you know blue collar workers and people with lower incomes and wanting to actually deliver policy achievements for these people to make their lives better. And Donald Trump, because he is not very good at presidenting, is actively harming his own constituents with his own actions and can't seem to find a way not to do that. Yeah, but I mean, that's what the Republicans have been doing since the 80s. So I don't know. You know, Trump Trump is definitely taking it to new levels, but we're going to have to see how it affects them. But I mean, one thing I do want to say in defense of Casey Cagle, 
if if the tables were turned and like it was President Obama still and Stacey and he was doing some like weird trade stuff or some foreign policy stuff and Abrams had said that like she supports Barack Obama and whatever he does in foreign policy and Evans was like no like I'll fight the president on trade like would you would you have thought that that should have prevented Stacey Evans from an, endorsing Stacey Abrams no but I think yeah, that, I don't, that's my this, problem. I don't understand what your criticism Cagle is because I feel like if the tables were turned, we wouldn't even be mentioning this. Casey Cagle's a hack, okay? But it's just like still, it's just like it's not. I don't see. I don't see like what you expect him to be doing. It's not about the endorsement. It's about to me. It's about Brian Kemp's comment that he is okay with whatever the president does. And right, but you didn't talk about that. You talked about Cagle. Well, no, but it's it. You know, Cagle is the one who who laid himself out as the person who was supposed to be the serious bulldog for Georgia and not just a lapdog for the president. You know, my issue with it is I am surprised that Brian Kemp doesn't take half a step back and say, you know, I support the president in these trade negotiations, but he needs to lay out what victory looks like. And he needs to assure people in our state that our industries are going to be everyone in the Republican primary just fell asleep. Um, they, they they want they want someone to be a lap dog for Donald Trump. Like that's I know. that's what that's they want. That's why Brian Kemp won. Yeah. And and so nuance is, is not in, in vogue right now. Uh and I think Brian Kemp uh is running a strategy based off of keeping every Republican base voter super excited so that they show up. And I I doubt we will see any nuance from him. Uh the real question is is if he's manages to become our next governor if he if he changes his tune or not well people even elected hopefully officials, we don't have to find out hopefully we have <laughs> governor stacy abrams and that's just a thought experiment for some other parallel universe even elected officials who have tried to confront the president have felt the brunt of the base of the republican party and so i think it's a real issue for voters to consider whether or not they would like the state of Georgia to be beholden to the whims of a billionaire real estate mogul and president from New York, or whether or not they would like a governor who is actually going to stand up for the people in the state. But Kyle, George Soros controls Stacey Abrams. That's true. Well, you know, somebody's got to stand up for George Soros too. <laughs> with that, I think we will leave that there. And, and with that, I'm going to retire my criticism of Casey Cagle because he is no longer a part of this race. Um, but I am just <laughs> continually Until he announces his third party run. Oh God. Well, I'm just continually frustrated by that man. Um, well, hopefully, uh, we won't have to deal with him ever again. But with that, I think we are going to leave it there and let you guys get out of here. So we will talk to y'all next week. Goodbye. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.